from God's word. It is Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 17 and going down through verse 24. The apostle Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's our passage for today. Actually, part of that is what we'll go through today. Let's bow and pray for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for bringing us together in this time that we assemble before you to hear your word. We pray that you would make it effective and powerful. May it accomplish its divine purposes that you have for our hearts, for our lives. We pray that people would be saved, that they would be brought to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they'd call upon him and bow their knees confess you are my Lord. And we pray that those who are saved will be strengthened to understand your will and to be made doers and not hearers only. For we ask for all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So let's go back to uh, verse 17, please, O slide man. Thank you very much. Let's read that one more time. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So this is serious. He's Paul, the apostle. He's saying this. And he's testifying in the Lord. This is in the Lord. This is God's will, God's word. This is God speaking through his word to you. That you must, the Christian life is full of obligations. There are moral imperatives. There are oughts. There are musts. That you must no longer, you used to, don't keep on. You used to, stop it. You used to, that's got to change. That you must no longer walk, live your life, conduct yourself as the Gentiles do. Who are the Gentiles? People without Christ. People all around us without God. Don't live like them is what he's saying. And what's wrong with them? Why do they think that way? Why do they live that way? We're going to get eight slices of that pie. Here's the first slice in the futility of their minds. So here's what Paul's accomplishing in this passage. There are really two things. The most obvious one is he's telling us how not to live as children of God. You used to live that way. Don't live that way any longer. But here's the second way that kind of lays implicit in the text, and it's this. Here's what's wrong with them. Here's Here's why they can think that way. He's, here's how they can act that way. It's in the futility of their minds and seven more things that we'll see he lists for us here. So Paul's telling us how not to live and Paul's telling us why they live that way. And in doing so, what we have here, and I want you to notice this, please. This is one of the Bible's premier focused, concentrated passages to teach us about what's wrong with people. What's wrong with people in the world? How can they do such things? How can they believe such things? And here he's answering those questions for us. 
It's going to get us into some theology, like we're going to cover three theological areas in particular. You know what theology is. Study, take one topic, study the whole Bible on it, systematize it all, and then you have the theology of that thing in the Bible. So we're going to have three that things from the whole Bible. We're looking at parts of it. We're going to look at anthropology, the doctrine of humanity, of people, of man. What's, what's wrong with people? What are their characteristics that allow them to think and do what they do? And we're going to look at hamartiology. That's the doctrine of sin, of our fallenness. That's going to come up very big in the text. And we're going to look to a lesser extent at the doctrine of soteriology. That's salvation. How does Jesus save us from that kind of thinking and that kind of fallenness? So Paul here is giving us some very important building blocks so that we might have a biblical understanding and a biblical worldview of what's wrong with humanity, of what's wrong with people, what's wrong with the planet. How can they think that way and how can they act that way? So you notice he says, back up one, please, slide man, that he says that you should no longer, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So he, that's one of his purposes, you remember. Don't live that way anymore. Here's how they think. Here's how they live. Here's why. Here's what's wrong in them. Here's what's going on. Don't you in Christ live that way anymore. And this reminds me of what Peter writes in his epistle when he says that you should no longer conduct yourselves in that vain manner of life which you inherited from your forefathers. It's vain. It's empty, it's futile, it's purposeless, it's not satisfying. No longer live in that. Or Paul over in Romans 12 writes, don't be conformed to this world, the way they think, the things they do. Don't be conformed to that. Don't let the world, another version says, squeeze you into its mold, but rather be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your minds so that you may do the will of God. So this passage is about what's wrong with them. Here's what it is, eight things, and don't live like that anymore. Here's the first of the eight. Now, next slide, please. They live, they walk, they exist in the futility of their minds. Other versions, instead of futility, have the word vanity. Same idea. The idea is this. The mind isn't working like it's supposed to. They're, they're not thinking like God meant them to think, like, like God made them to think. The, the word futility or the word vanity, we might illustrate it this way. So you buy yourself an amazing new lawnmower. I mean, you really drop some coin on that lawnmower. It's got like a six foot, what do you call that? It's six feet wide. And it's a zero radius turning thing and it's, it's beautiful and it's red and it's new and it's powerful and you buy it and you bring it home and you turn it on and you drive back and forth in your yard and it doesn't cut one blade of grass. You say, this lawnmower, it's futile. It's worthless. It's, it's not doing what a lawnmower is supposed to do. Same thing, ladies, dishwasher. You get the $850 version, dishwasher. The guy charges you 250 bucks to put it in. And you fill it up with dirty dishes and you hit run and it goes and then you open it and they're just as dirty as when you put them in. You say, this thing is vain. This thing is not working right. That's what the text is saying about human fallen minds in the, in the futility of their minds. So again, this is answering the question, how can they think such stuff? And how can they live that way? And Paul's giving us reasons that are not 
like surface level reasons, they're all very deep. Like this is the disease, not the symptoms. This is what's going on in them subterranean level. This is what's going on deep down in their souls and their hearts. It's in the futility of their minds. Now the fact that fallen minds are futile, that they don't think God's thoughts like they ought to, is indicative of another theological thing that we ought to all be familiar with. It's this thing called total depravity. Have you heard of that? Let me tell you what total depravity is not. Total depravity does not say that you are as bad as you could be or that anybody is as bad as they could be. Thank God, due to his common grace, he restrains us from going as far as our sins would go, and most people are not near as bad as they could be, or you couldn't live on the planet. So total depravity doesn't mean people are as bad as they can be. That's not the total. What total depravity means is this. Your fallenness extends to every part of your being. So you're fallen in will, you're fallen in intellect, that's this. You're fallen in emotions, that's your loves. Your fault. You love the wrong things, you hate the wrong things. So your will, your intellect, your emotions, all that you are, your body, it's all fallen, that's total depravity. And that's what this is, in the futility of their mind. The fall has affected your thinking, the fall has affected your mind, and you don't think right. It's not just that we're not good at logic, and we're not. It's not just that we're not good at reasoning, and we're not. But it's that the closer you get to the things of God, it's like there's a sliding scale. If you do two plus two is four, you can, do that, you can handle that, right? But the closer you get to the things of God, if you don't have a new heart, if you're not a new creature in Christ, you get closer to the things of God and the truths of God, and you start to reason in ways that are crazy, because your heart doesn't want to go there, so your brain tries to reason around the obvious implications of a world over whom God is sovereign. So this is total depravity. It affects our intellects. Maybe like the classic example of that is the first example of that in the Bible. What happened? Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit and they fell. What's the next thing we find them doing? They're hiding behind trees from God. Hiding from God behind a tree. Like, oh, he can't see us over here, Eve. Come on. That's like indicative of what happened to our thinking. Another theological term for all this, for all you egghead people who are here, all five of you. Um, this is for of the noetic effects. This is about the noetic effects of the fall. N-O-E-T-I-C. Nothing to do with Noah. It's N-O-E. It comes from the Greek word naos, meaning Mind. There are mental effects of the fall. Another great example would be Jonah. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to Nineveh. He was the reluctant prophet. God made him preach. He preached. They all repented. Jonah's all upset. He goes, sits down and mourns, and God's reasoning with him. And he says, Jonah, should I not have mercy on great Nineveh with all those people, none of whom know their right hand from their left? Now, he didn't mean like some of you, if I say turn left, you go, wait a minute, which is left? Anybody have that? He didn't mean that. He meant morally, spiritually, they're like infants. Infants don't know their right hand from their left. They haven't learned that much yet. And morally and theologically, all the people in Nineveh didn't even know what's right and what's left. 
theologically, biblically, as far as morality and God's law, and God says, shouldn't they have mercy on such people? They were brilliant people in Nineveh, but they were fallen people. They were there in the futility of their minds. So I'm spending way longer on point number one, by the way. Two through eight are going fast. So don't get worried. In the futility of your mind, you're worrying already. So is there any of this futility of the minds in our day? Like, does this exist on our planet anywhere right now? Anywhere noticeable? Let me give you some examples, maybe more than you want. Take heart. I cut the list down already. So there's the naturalist atheist. And how can they be? You say, how on earth can they possibly think and believe what they do? Like, I can't possibly look at creation and say, I don't see any God. But they look at it. The heavens are declaring, Psalm 19, the glory of God. The firmament is showing his handiwork. Wow, somebody has been at work here, and they're brilliant and powerful and amazing. And there is no human speech or language where their voice is not heard. Anywhere there's humanity, those heavens are speaking and speaking and speaking. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night shows forth knowledge. They never stop speaking. And yet we have people who are brilliant who say, I don't hear a word. I don't see a thing. And there is no God. And they become atheists and naturalists. Romans chapter 1 says, hmm, the things of God are clearly known, being seen, being perceived in the things that are made, namely his eternal power and Godhead. So God made creation to shout to you at every moment of your existence, there is a great, incredible, divine being. You need to know him. You need to seek him. And in the futility of their minds, they say, I don't think he's there. I see no evidence of his existence. These are noetic effects of the fall. So that you have an eminent biologist, DMS Watson, who wrote, quote, the theory of evolution itself is universally accepted, not because it can be proved by evidence to be true, but because the only alternative is special creation, which we clearly can't believe. That's interesting. The futility of their minds. Or we go back to the origins of life on this rock. The technical term is abiogenesis. How did life begin? Where did it all start? Well, let's do this. I should have brought a, I should have brought a, yeah, there's another word. Should have brought a visual aid. A rock. Imagine my phone is a rock. It basically is anyway, right? Everything you see is either grew out of the earth or it's mined out of the earth. This didn't grow. It's, my, it's mainly, it's all mined out of the earth, all right? So here it is. Imagine it's a rock. It's bumpy. It's lumpy. I'm holding a rock in my hand. So go way, 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 way back as long as they want you to. And all we had was a rock, a great big rock called planet Earth. It was a rock. There was not one living thing or bit or particle on it because it had just been extremely hot and extremely fast and it gradually cooled down and nobody came and put little living teeny things on it. It's just a rock. It's all it is. So you're holding your hand in a rock. How long would you have to wait before life arises on that rock? Well, like forever because that's never going to happen. 
I don't care if lightning strikes, you still, now you have a hot rock. All right? I mean, just none of the, so it's amazing what they write. So, you know, the earth long ago, and then it cooled, and then here's the next phrase. I read it in somebody a couple weeks ago, thinking about this sermon. Then life began to form. That's like pulling a rabbit out of your hat. That's like waving wiffle dust. What do you mean life began to form? And then how do you get from that to that? And how do you get from that to this? And what are the intermediaries that serve no purpose and so on? I can't believe any of that stuff. But they believe it all. What about ethics and morals in the futility of their minds? Eminent neo-Darwinian philosopher Michael Ruse, R-U-S-E, writes, quote, ethics is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate, to get us to behave in ways that are good for evolution. Ethical codes work because they favor our long-term survival. Our biology forces us to think that there is an objective higher code to which we are all subject, but ethics is a shared illusion of the human race. And he's being logical, he's being honest, he's being rational, he's being real, like most people aren't. If you start with nothing but a rock, and somehow we did grow out of the rock, then there are no ethics. There is no right, there is no wrong. Right is what the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, right is the position taken by that nation that can lick all other nations. Might makes right. What about, <laughs> what about in, in the futility of their minds, what about the multiverse? Anybody been thinking about the multiverse? You know what the multiverse is. That means that there is an infinite number of universes that each one varies slightly from this one. What are they doing? Sean Carroll is one of the best advocates of this. He's at Caltech, though he's coming by this fall. I just read he'll be at Hopkins from here on out. But he's, he's a brilliant physicist, astrophysicist. I don't know what he is. Out at Caltech, coming to Hopkins. And he's one of the biggest advocates of the multiverse. So I've listened to him a lot, and I've interacted with a very bright, unbelieving friend of mine who really digs it. And, and here's what they're after. No doubt, they'll tell you this. Here's why they've invented the multiverse. It's not that, well, science dictated to us that they're... No, 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 it's this. This universe cannot have happened. The fine-tuning required for this to work at, like, the subatomic level, at the level of stuff, at the level of physics of it all, and in any number of other ways from things we see and experience, it can't have happened. It's impossible. All the things that had to come together for this to work. So they say, ah, we'll deal with the impossibility. There's an infinite number of these. And if you have an infinite number of these, then this happened once, and here it is. In fact, he goes on to say, and he's serious. He's a brilliant man, he's coming to Hopkins and he's serious. He says, not only are there infinite universes, but there are infinite yous. But in each universe, something's different. Like right now, there's another you in another universe sitting right in church listening to me speak, but you have on red socks. There's that universe, all right? Then there's the one where you're alone in this room. There's just all these universes. Why would a brilliant physicist at Caltech coming to Hopkins make up such a thing? It's in the futility of their minds. What about anthropology? What is man? Francis Crick, the British biophysicist with whom Watson discovered DNA, he wrote, quote, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity, 
your sense that you have personal free will, these things are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules in you. So there's no real you. There's no real personal. And so there's no real love and there's no real meaning and there's no real purpose and there's no real value. And he's just being consistent with his starting point. Oh, that more people would be. He's just telling you the truth. If you start there, this is what you get. This is where you end, the anthropology. Or how about, can you handle just two more? Are you staying with me? How about, how about deconstructionism? Deconstructionism, part of which says humans can't really communicate. They write, they teach. Humans can't really communicate, and they expect you to understand them when they say humans can't really communicate. So it's kind of a self-defeating proposition, right? But... Except for what I'm saying, humans can't really communicate. This is really an attack on God, who is the thinking, communicating God. This is an attack on God's truth. You can't really understand that. We can't really communicate that to one another. This is an attack on the Bible. And one form of deconstructionism that's especially interesting is that now we are told by many that the whole intellectual process, the use of logic and reasoning, these are but tools of the oppressors who are themselves homophobic, Christian nationalists, racist, cisgendered, patriarchal haters. And you can't use the oppressor's tools to beat the oppressor, so don't try and use logic. Don't try and use reasoning. Just scream a lot. That's pretty much where it is. Or what about, just one more example, how can they believe this stuff? How can they believe in radical gender theory? How can they believe in radical sexual revolution stuff? How can they believe this stuff? This is how, in the futility of their minds. This is God's diagnosis. He opens the heart, he looks in and he says, there's the disease. There's what's wrong. Here's where all that kind of stuff comes from. And Paul says to you, but you no longer you don't think that way anymore. You don't live that way anymore. You don't act that way anymore. No longer in the futility of your mind. And aren't you glad to be done with the futility of your mind? I mean, we're not freed yet. We're not 100% redeemed from the noetic effects of the fall. We don't think real well. We're not real rational. But compare me now to before Christ? Wow, what a difference. We have been delivered in Christ. The Bible says we now have the mind of Christ. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. We no longer walk in that futility. But here's the second, and I, let me remind you, two through eight go fast. So sitting there in the futility of your mind and you're worrying, oh no, it's going to be a long sermon. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Next. And they are darkened in their understanding, verse 18a. This again, this is step two. How can they believe such stuff? How can they think the way they do? How can they live the way they do? Here's the Bible's subterranean, let's get down to the core, let's go to the disease. Here's the Bible's answer in a premier passage on this. They are darkened in their understanding. This is how it works. John chapter 1 teaches us that Jesus Christ came and he was the light of men and the light shined in darkness and the darkness did not receive him. He came unto his own, the people prepared, and they did not receive him. They shut their eyes and said, I don't see any light. Do you see any light? 
Romans chapter 1 says, they did not like to retain God and their knowledge. You see, they lead with their hearts. I don't want those morals. I don't want that God. I don't want that life. And so I choose not to believe in that God, and I'm going to make it look like it's scientific. I'm going to make it look like it's real and brilliant, but it's not. Here's a paraphrase of John 1 and Romans 1. God gave them light. They shut their eyes. God turned out the light, and it got dark. Is it dark in our day? Oh, tell me about it. Has it ever been darker? Well, yes. What about right before the flood? God saw that every thought of the imagination of men's heart was only evil continually. And so he wiped out the whole race. It's been worse. But we're comparing this to 1950, when it was way better. 1 Corinthians 2.14, darken in their understanding, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Who's the natural man? Not regenerated yet, not made new by the Spirit of God. They receive not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can they, because those things are spiritually discerned. You can only get it if this Holy Spirit has regenerated you and made you alive in Christ. And then you go, oh, Eureka, I have found it, I see. But darken in their understanding. More about that. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, the God of this world has blinded their minds, lest they believe lest they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and turn to him. When did he do that? When did the God of this world blind their minds? At the fall. We're all born blind. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We all need the Spirit of God to regenerate us. How can they believe this stuff? They're darkened in their understanding. The lights went out. Here's slice number three, looking at various slices of the inner being of humanity. They are alienated from the life of God. This is horrible. There's God everywhere. There's life in God. They are alienated from it. Alienated. Colossians 1.21 chimes in. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Notice the order it goes in. It's because I want this evil behavior that my mind goes to work and justifies it. And my mind goes to work and justifies it, and now I don't accept that God or his revelation. And then you are alienated from God, and you are enemies in your minds, alienated from the life of God. James talks about this, James 4.4, 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you love the world, you're against God, and God is against you, alienated. The most horrific example that I came across, and I came across this many years ago, and I saved it, is Jeremy Rifkin. Mr. Rifkin is an American economic and social theorist. He's an eminent, probably brilliant person. And he wrote these horrific words. Quote, We, humans, we no longer feel ourselves 
to be guests in someone else's home. That someone else is God. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home. And therefore, we no longer feel obligated to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. Read God's law. God's truth, the Ten Commandments, the Bible. Now we no longer feel obligated. Now listen to this, it gets worse. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. That's God. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves for, and here it really gets bad. This is blasphemous. For we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Whew. How can a man write such things? Alienated from the life of God, but made for fellowship with God. You remember that before the fall, Adam and Eve, what were they doing? They would walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That's what you're meant for. That's what we're meant for, for walking with God. But because of our fallenness, we are alienated from God. We are estranged from God. We're at war with God. We just might not know it. We're at enmity with God. How can they believe these things? That's why alienated. Let's go on to point four, the fourth slice. And it's because of the ignorance that is in them. Here God says, you're all ignorant. So just own it, all right? Because of the ignorance that is in them. There's the problem. It's ignorance. They might be highly intelligent. They might be amazingly skillful at crafting arguments, but they're ignorant. It's gross ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of God, ignorance of the Bible, ignorance of Jesus Christ, ignorance of redemption, ignorance about heaven, ignorance about hell, ignorance about time and life and what they're for. Listen, the greatest problem on the planet is ignorance of God. That might be the greatest problem in your life. Ignorance of God, it can be solved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you a new heart. You will love God and learn from him. Ignorance of God's word, the teachings of this book, because of the ignorance that is in them. And it's a culpable ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. It's Romans 12, Romans chapter 1 tells us, quote, because although they knew God, they didn't like to have God in their thoughts. So that, so what they did is they suppressed his truth in unrighteousness so that they are without excuse. It's, it's a culpable ignorance. That little phrase in verse 18, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. I like that phrase. That's a very important phrase. It explains a lot. So they take all that Psalm 19, heavens declaring the glory of God, firmament showing his handiwork, and they stuff it in a box, and they're sitting on the lid of the box, and they're like, there's nothing in the box, and the box is bouncing. And every now and then, the lid pops open, and a ray of brilliant light shines out over there. I didn't see anything. Brilliant light over there. I didn't see anything. Smoke's coming out. God's law. The threats of judgment. I don't, I don't see any smoke. You see any smoke? And the box is bouncing, bouncing. There's no bouncing in this box. And they live their whole lives that way. 
suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And Paul says, so that they are without excuse. It's culpable ignorance. British novelist Aldous Huxley wrote that he was perfectly frank about his culpable ignorance. Here he is, quote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. And I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. That's exactly how it works. I had reasons why I didn't want that God. I had reasons why I didn't want that book. I had reasons why I didn't want morality. So I crafted, so my mind goes to work to back up what my heart wants and doesn't want because of the ignorance that is in them. Number five, due to their hardness of heart. Number six, similar, so I'll take them together. They've become callous. So what's wrong? How can they think that way? How can they act that way? Because their hearts are hard and they're calloused. The word for a hard heart is sclerosis. So we, you know, it's a medical term nowadays. You have sclerosis. It's a hardening, sclerosis. But it's a hardening of their heart. The heart that's supposed to be soft and penetrable. God's word goes in. It's hard. It's hard. It's like an M1 tank. It's like armored. You're not getting in my heart, God. I'm not letting that word in my heart. No. Calloused. Nothing gets through. Job 41, 24, his heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone, the big one down there. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart. See, he has to do that because the heart is the problem. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, soft, my word goes in, the gospel goes in, my commandments, my precepts go in. But there they are, Bible proof, sermon proof, truth proof, the word of God won't go in. And so consequently, go to six, we just did six, go to seven, thank you. Seven, thanks, slide man. And they have given themselves up to sensuality. Oh, what an awful thing. They have given themselves up to it. Another translation, they've given themselves over to it. Like here, sensuality, here I am, take me. I'm living for you now. And aren't there so many people living for that? Like that's their life. So for the first time in all of human history, I don't know if you realize this, this is absolutely factual, absolutely true. For the first time in human history, we have humans saying, who am I? Well, my identity is a Primarily a sexual identity that never existed until now. Your identity was always, well, I'm part of that clan. I'm part of this family. I do that kind of work. I live in that geographical area. Things like that have always been your identity. It's only now that humans say, no, my identity is my sexuality. And so you're hurting my identity if you don't allow me, if you don't confirm me, affirm me in the expression of whatever I want in my sexual identity. They've given themselves up to sensuality. We must be allowed to do anything we want to do, and you must affirm us. And if you don't, we'll make you pay. Is that not where we are? It reminds me of Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. These are not up on the screen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's God the Son. And here's what they say, those kings and those rulers, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's get rid of this God. Let's get rid of his word. Let's get rid of Jesus Christ. Let's get rid of these commands. Let's crush it so they can give themselves up to sensuality. And what you get is in Romans 1. I've mentioned it a few times. I want to read a portion of it now. Good one to read in our times. Romans 1, 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Interesting, that one's on the list. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They're in our day, they're inventing, they're multiplying ways to be evil. Disobedient to parents. How did that get on the list? Because that's where you start your career. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They've given themselves up to sensuality, and this is what you get. We have to approve everybody who practices such things. Let's go to slide eight, or number eight, please. And here they are. Here's the final. And they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And man, if that is not our day, I don't know what day you would pick. And then Paul says, Ephesians 4.20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. A few closing thoughts. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be very different. We are to be very unlike our world. To use Romans 12 again. We are not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. In our day, this has gotten more difficult. It's gotten more complex because the battle lines are drawn more sharply and severely. So it's harder right now. But by the grace of God, may you be helped. May we all be helped. May we be made strong by the word of God and the spirit of God so that we would not be conformed to our world and its thinking, which leads to its behavior. No, it is time for followers of Jesus Christ to take some very hard stands to draw some very firm lines in the sand and to not cross over them. I'm not saying you have to be obnoxious. I'm not saying you have to be, you know, uh, what's the word? Socially awkward. I can't think of the word I wanted. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. Where you need to stand, you stand. Where you need to be strong, you be strong. And if they're going to burn you at the stake, well, oh, well, you'll wake up in heaven. Many Christians have been burned at the stake before you, and they literally have been. And for things as simple as, I will not confess to transubstantiation. I don't believe the bread actually becomes Jesus, and they burn you for that. And Christians in their teens have stood for that. 
Who are we to cave in at the little pressures of our day? It's time for followers of Jesus Christ to realize that's not the way you learned Christ. So may God help us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this wonderful, this amazing portion of your holy word. And thank you that it teaches us so clearly what's wrong with our world, what's wrong with us as fallen people. We pray, our Father, for people in this building, people in our hearing, people all around us, that you would draw them by your word and by the Holy Spirit, that multitudes of them may bow the knee and confess that Jesus is now their Lord. And Father, many of us are before you with our knees bowed. The knees of our hearts are bowed before you. And we pray that you will enable us by your grace, young or old, that you will enable us to stand with truth, to stand with your word, to stand with righteousness, and to not be conformed, not be forced into the mold of this world. Strengthen our young people in these confusing days. Help them to think clearly. Help them to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ and so to be found doing the will of God. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you like to get in touch with a Cornerstone pastor? There are six of them. Um, all you have to do is text pastor to the number on the screen. One of us will be reaching out to you. We'd love that opportunity. Give it to us, please. Thank you. Pastor Stan. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for the truth of the 